What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, it's been a while since we talked about our old mate Jason Furman. Uh, has he paid his bills? He has paid his bills. Oh, okay. So we should record him a new ad. Surely he has a website now? Uh, no, he does not. Oh, uh, maybe he's provided a direct phone number people can order through? Uh, I'll just check. Nope, no phone number either. I like the way that you're actually pretending to look whether he has provided <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in contact with Jason, you still have to do that through Facebook. It's uh, Einswick Dog Quip, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Jason can hook you up with all the things you might be interested in getting, the Firepaw Mills, which a lot of people are getting and loving. Mm. He has Herm Springer products, if you're into those. Yep. He has balls, leashes, tugs. Yep. And at the moment, he has a 10% discount on all Canine USA products. That's pretty cool. And I believe he's got a lot of the other stuff that you can use to compete in GRC as well, such as the sleds and the mm. spring poles. Yeah, that's correct. He yeah. sure does. Well, it's so great. That's a sport that, taking the world by storm. Yeah. So if you're into that or you just like training your dog, having a good time, have a chat to Jason on Facebook at Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Send him an inventory via Messenger and get your gear. <laughs> <laughs> get a website, Jason, you bozo. Yeah. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by a whole swagger of people today. Glenn's here with me. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Just got bumped in at the end. <laughs> no, you're here with me. Yeah. And then we're very, very lucky to have Jerry Bradshaw, Janet, and Sean Edwards. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Howdy. Welcome to the studio, everyone. Well, the room. I dare not call it a studio anymore because Pat tears me one in the ass. Well, I mean, you can call it a studio. I do call it a studio, but Pat likes to call it the middle room. Yeah, it's just the room in the, the house. The transit room. <laughs> Before I actually came here, I imagined that it was like a, a fancy studio. No. It's not. <laughs> it's good that it's it's good to know that we're keeping the illusion alive yeah. though. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's yeah. that illusion. But thanks to our Patreon supporters, one yeah. day we might actually be able to afford a studio. Thanks, Patreon supporters. We love you. Yeah. I mean you've already added the uh sound insulation in here, so <laughs> the mattress <laughs> leaning up, up against up. the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glenn has these ideas that we're gonna get a caravan and soundproof it and be able to take the show on the road and have an actual mobile <laughs> studio. And, and like, you know, who knows? I, I can dream, right? That. I yeah. can dream. A man can dream. You've I, got to have dreams. I think, that's a, I think that's a really good goal. Yeah. All you guys have actually been on the show before. So you're all veterans of the canine paradigm. And we had a plan to talk about some industry stuff today. Glenn, what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about cannibalism in the industry. It's quite an emotive topic for a lot of people because we're now facing a joint problem where there's a great big machine that's revving up behind the scenes and we've got a lot of clubs of small amounts of people 
groups of 10 to 20 people all around the world who want to have or have been isolative and are still looking at their individualism. So rather than combining forces and looking at uniting against people who are looking to shut us down, and I don't know why they want to shut us down. I mean, it's a dog sport all over the world and training ideologies is very functional, but I just don't understand their motives against it. But to them, it makes perfect sense. What do you guys think? Well, I've been I've actually been giving this a lot of thought in recent months. And one of the things that I see is, and this is true of pretty much every political action that happens at the, you know, at least at the state and, and local levels, you see something bad happens, you know, some bad press happens, maybe some people do some bad things. And instead of putting things in an actual statistical perspective, what you have is one bad thing happens, it resonates with uh, everybody who owns pets. And then we forget that there's on a weekly basis, literally hundreds of thousands of success stories of dogs going to dog trainers, getting trained well, getting back in their homes, avoiding euthanasia and so forth and so on. And so if you were to actually look at the numbers, we ignore all the good things that happen. And then we focus in on the few bad things that happen. And then of course, everybody wants to call for mommy and daddy to fix everything, which mm. usually comes down to some sort of governmental oversight, as if anybody in the government has any clue as to how to regulate dog training, because nobody in the, you know, I would venture to say that there's really no dog trainers in the state legislature in North Carolina, which is one of the places where, you know, these ideas are being kicked around. So then they're going to have to go out and, you know, and solicit some organizations to actually write standards and give tests and whatever else uh, they're, they're going to do. I mean, obviously, you have medical professions, you have dental professions, you have all types of other professions that have professional standards that, that are written from within the organizations. And, you know, and you have other, you know, you have other types of organizations within those, you know, those medical fields and things of that nature where there are standards are written for different specialties and things like that. And I, I think that's, you know, that's an industry that's to a certain extent regulated from the inside out. And the government just sets certain standards based on that. Mm. What worries me is that we're going to end up because we're so divisive in the dog world right. that we're all fighting with each other, that whatever is the squeakiest or the loudest mm. complainer is going to be the one, you know, that gets chosen to write the standards for all the rest of us. And that's, I worry about that sort of thing because it's easy to bamboozle people who don't have any idea about, you know, what the, what the right thing is. And when you're talking about legislators who don't really understand any of the nuances of, of dog training, how it's done, what's necessary, what's not necessary, what's complete and utter bullshit, then you have, uh, you know, then you're kind of leaving it up to chance as to how that's, that's all going to go down. And, you, and obviously you guys have had probably a brush with this, or at least are on the road to this even, even more than, than we are, because there are some places here in Australia, obviously I have tool bands and things of that nature. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're already starting to experience some of that. And I think it's, uh, yeah, when, when you think about what's happening in Europe with bands of prong collars and e-collars and, uh, you know, when we had our we had our meeting of the American Schutzen Group a couple of months ago, Debbie Zappia, world champion, probably one of the best obedience trainers on the planet, she said, 
in those places where you can't use these tools, which actually are humane, uh, then what happens is people resort to doing things that are inhumane. They're using their hands, they're using their feet, they're using, they're grabbing dog, like, you know, you're, you're using things that you wouldn't otherwise have to use. You know, if you can use some low level stem on an e-collar or you can use a, a prong collar for, you know, for um, steering a dog and, and giving him feedback that he's going to understand. And if it's used properly, you know, you have a, a much easier time teaching that dog what you want to teach him. And this is what people don't understand. They see, they only focus in on the negativity on, on the case where something bad was done. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, one of the recent videos of, you know, of, of abuse that made it away around Facebook, like the trainer was holding a plastic bat, you know what I mean? So, I mean, you can, if you want to, if you want to do something bad, you can do something bad with any tool. Yeah, right? That's right. Do you think it's possible? I've heard people hypothesize that maybe the idea of tool bans is a start to training of dogs is a, a stepping stone to banning of training dogs the type of dogs that we like knowing that they can't really be trained without tools humanely exactly as you just say and so the long-term goal of some people who would be banning tools is not only to ban the tools but to ban the sports and that the actual even breeding and having of that type of dog i believe the answer is absolutely and i also believe that the answer is it's not just about banning the sports it's about banning pet ownership entirely And that is certainly the mandate of one of the most active and proactive animal bodies on this planet, which is PETA. Right. I'm going to name them outright. There's no ifs and buts and maybes about it. It's their mandate on their website. It's Ingrid Newkirk's mantra. She spews that out in every opportunity she gets, any soapbox that she gets to stand on. That's the thing that she makes apparent straight away. So all her supporters and the people behind her I mean some of them are animal owners They don't even realize where this is actually going. Mm -hmm. So if you stop the tools, then you stop the progress of the dog sports. If you stop the progress of the dog sports, people lose interest in taking their dogs out and being obedient. Then there's lack of control all over the place. Then government legislation starts stepping in. People are advising to the government, as Jerry pointed out before. These are the people who are the very same people. These are offshoots of their organization who are bringing it back in. They're so proactive, they're so well-funded, they're so mobile, and they're so energetic. They never stop. They never stop to rest. Where we do, we only react when there's an issue, where they're active all the time. They're so proactive. And it really is an alarming thing. You talk about things that keep you up at night. That's one of the things that keeps me up at night. Because in certain activities that I'm involved in, I see that, that machine revving up behind the background. I see the compromise that people are starting to make. Those sort of things scare me. And this is why I'm so alarmed at the very point that Jerry made before that you've got these small groups of people who are so small minded about the opportunity of banding together. I mean, on this show and on your show, Jerry, and on many podcasts around that are animal involved for people in the balanced industry. We really need to look at mobilizing. We really need a international body that represents all of us. We've got to stop fighting. And I know that's probably very ignorant of me to believe that may happen, but I'm, I'm still hopeful. I'm still very hopeful. Well, I, think the, I think the thing that we have to be really careful of is if it gets too late before we can actually uh, react. Yes. I mean, we tend to be, well, we're, you know, here's the thing is like a lot of the, a lot of these uh, people who are um, some spend the majority of their time complaining about what other dog trainers are doing and, and how they're uh, doing it. 
those people are, aren't spending a whole lot of time training dogs from what I can tell. And, yeah. you know, the rest of us are actually doing, doing things and making, you know, uh, making things happen, training dogs every day. You know, and so we're busy kind of doing our, our work. And then on the other side of the, you know, on the other side of the coin, you have, you know, you have to start thinking about, all right, well, if we, now we have to always defend ourselves. And I, th- I think it's, I think it's tough when you're always put on the defensive and partially it's, it's the, the way these arguments come up and, and the uh, and the reactivity to uh, bad incidents that you know that uh, that make their way around social media and things of that nature and i think again you know we we fall prey to the idea you know that w- these bad incidents are representative of our entire industry and i think that's a huge mistake to make but you know what is it that gets gets people's uh, interest well something bad happened everybody gets in an uproar about it politicians say we need to do something about this and and blah 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 and then the next thing you know they're getting more popular because they're addressing something that everybody perceives as an issue when in fact it's probably a much much smaller issue than many other important things that they could actually be spending some real time on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, you know, that's where putting things in perspective uh, matters. I think we need to get articulate people to, you know, do what nobody wants to do, which is go convince people who have no idea about anything that we really do mm-hmm. and try and convince them that, you know, Hey, there's, there's more to the argument than, than the side that you're hearing. There's, you know, and, and necessarily regulating things in a particular way is not going to stop people. If you have, if you have hate in your heart, it doesn't matter That's right. you know, what tool you have, you're some, something bad's going to happen. If you're, you know, if you're that type of person that's going to get frustrated and, you know, and want to harm an animal, you know, you certainly don't belong in the dog training industry, but by the same token, uh, it doesn't matter what tools are available to you. You're going to do it anyway. You might go to Walmart and buy a children's plastic baseball bat and whack the crap out of the dog in the yep. head. And then, you know, there you, you've, you've still achieved your objective of taking your frustration out on an animal. Well said. So I think I think we have. But, uh, you know, the, the downside is none of us want to be, you know, league, you know, activists, you know, political activists. But it's time where we actually have to start thinking about that and, and coming together and, and picking people who may be good at that type of work. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of money in our industry. And I think we have to start thinking about putting it you know, toward maybe even hiring some lobbyists or things like that. But we have to organize in some fashion and. And, and the whole point of this podcast, which we were going to, we were going to, you know, uh, release about cannibalism in the industry is if we can't even get along to the point where we can talk to each other because we do things differently, we have no hope of being able to, you know, come together at the level we need to, to actually start combating some of the nonsense that's mm. being spewed around about our, our the, the work that we do. Yeah. That is the tricky part. I think in that the people who will want to be the the face of that are often not the people that we would like to be the face of it. So the people who, okay, there's, there's regulation coming. My technique should be the one that is implemented as the law. And the people who have the time and will to do that are typically, you, you probably imagine the kind of people I'm thinking about, yeah. are typically not the people, even on the balance side, are not the people that we want to be um, making their techniques legislative and enforceable. Yeah, it's going to be hard to find people without their own personal agendas that want to jump in there and take the spot. Yeah. I talked about that recently with someone about e-collar stuff and that uh, I, I for a little while was for some kind of regulation of e-collars. You know, we, here in New South Wales, they're illegal. And so I personally welcome some 
something that's a step down from illegal where there is a training package or something like that and allowable under under licensing from a, someone who provides a, a training package on that. But then I kind of shy away from that as well because who would provide that? And, and the who way watches that, the watcher? Yeah, and the way that I might use an e-collar would be completely different to the way that someone else might use an e-collar. I was uh, in the US recently and a woman's advice for her out was level 80 and the dog will out. And I was like, well, how about we go to level 10 and we teach the dog to out? And that was way more effective. And so... I I get really worried about like what's the legislation going to look like? Is it going to say go to level eighty to get there? And then we just first of all you give people the uh, opportunity and entitlement to use those tools in not a great way, uh, but then you close the door on learning better ways to use those tools. Or they just regulate them to where okay we're only going up to what five is. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like then it might be useless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And. Another problem that we certainly see this, say, in um, some of the police forces here that are only allowed to use the e-collar with certain permission from their headquarters, like to fix a particular problem. And then the idea that the e-collar is a punishment tool becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. If you can only use it with special permission, you have to use it as a last resort. I know there's some organizations, I think it might be like the IAABC, I could be getting the acronym wrong or whatever, but they will accept the use of an e-collar as a last resort. And it's like, well, then it becomes a high-level punishment tool because you've you've made it that. And they don't acknowledge the fact that you can use that for negative reinforcement as a teaching guiding pressure along the way. And so that's what I get really concerned about in any regulation is the type of person that wants to be the front runner of that mm-hmm. um, is often not the kind of person that's doing the kind of training that you or I might think is good training. And we talked about this on the show not long ago, like the type of person that if you and I had to choose who it was, you know, it would certainly be a female spokesperson that would front the headline because we really need to compete with what they're competing with. Yeah. Getting guys up there who are very passionate and speak very passionately, you're still viewed as a bad guy in the industry for some reason. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys heard about it. We spoke about it a long time ago that I believe that, say, Victoria Stilwell, for example, is a manufactured character. She's not a dog trainer. She's a spice girl of dog training. It's manufactured. And I, I feel like, you know, sometimes you should fight fire with fire. And I just don't know how to do this and I don't know where to even begin, but I feel like as balance trainers, we need to manufacture a character. And it's a person that is identified as being intelligent and having a natural skill with a dog mm-hmm. and then spends two years traveling around learning from various people all over the world to then be our spokesperson. And they need to have a certain look, but then have the knowledge and background that would take a long time to get. The reason I sort of hesitate on that being able to even happen is because we do attack ourselves and we no one wants to enable that person. You know, like I, I like to think I would support it if but I just don't know who would push it. But someone said, hey, Pat, this person is going to come to you for two weeks and you're going to give give them everything you know. And then they're going to go to someone else for two weeks and they're going to give them everything they know or, you know, however long the period and they're going to travel around. But then they're going to be our champion. They're the person that's going to go on the news. They've got the right, they've got the right info. They've got the right knowledge. They're going to do talk shows. They're going to make videos. They're going to do all of that. Inevitably, that person will become very rich and very famous. Mm. And I that creates like, jealousy straight yeah, away. Yeah, so then there's so many people in the industry that are like, I'll be that person. And the people that throw their hand up for that are probably not the person that we are. Well, Jan's going to laugh because we're going to bring up Rogan. But it's almost like Rogan when he talks about the presidency, right? Yeah. It's like the person that we should have in a presidency is the people that don't want it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's right. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I think uh, at least now, as we're, we're starting to face some of these things, you know, more locally, I think what I think what we have to do is we have to we have to start talking to one another and and set aside a lot of our differences, and uh, and and you know, kind of really be careful of this call out culture um, that we have on social mm-hmm. media. I think that's. I like, I get it when, you know, when, you know, there are frauds out there, there are, there are people that are, <laughs> that are purporting to be something that they're not, I think, but we have to, there has to be a certain level where we just say, you know what, there are bigger fish to fry and, and those fish to fry are, you know, the, 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 the fish where we come together and we actually organize a little bit and, and we talk more to each other about uh, the things that we actually do well. Like, like one of the things that is unfortunate is if you go to a competition, let's say, I don't care if it's a IPO competition, a ring sport competition, a PSA competition, and you see working dogs working happily doing what they've been bred to do, well-trained, usually with some fairly balanced methodology, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and you see what those dogs are capable of, then it gives you a bit of a different impression about the trainers that are training those dogs. And I think that's the, I think that's the thing is we, we always see the worst examples of the worst type of training that gets, you know, all of the, all of the press. And, you know, if you just happen to be, you know, if uh, the trainer of that dog happens to be an e-collar user or a prong collar user or whatever, like you can see stupid training anywhere uh, without, yeah. w- without, without naming any tools. But I mean, unfortunately, a lot of times that sort of stuff happens and we really have to start thinking about how can we come together and say, yeah, I know you do things a little bit differently than I do and I do things differently than you do, but we're all in this for the same reason. We all, you know, we all got into this industry because we love dogs, because we want relationships with pet owners to be better. We we want sport people to, to rise to the top of their uh, abilities to maximize what they can get out of their dogs. We, we want our working dogs to, you know, go out and find bad guys and, and put bad people in, you know, in handcuffs and save officer lives and things like that. And if you're in this industry for, for those reasons, then focus on those things and maybe take away a little bit of the infighting, because if we don't start, if we don't start eliminating all this infighting, then what's going to happen is we're going to get more and more fragmented, more, more and more segmented. And we're doing exactly what the people who want to see our demise yeah. are doing. We're cannibalizing ourselves from the inside and we have to start thinking about, you know, what's worth it. Are all the fights, you know, all the fights that are being spawned on Facebook worth it? That is a, you know, like that's a huge deal in the sense that a lot of people see that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and it gets put around and videos, you know, videos make their rounds and the comments and, and that sort of thing. Like I get it when, you know, certain people, you know, personally attack you. Sometimes you, you want to defend yourself, but at the same time we have to, as an industry, think more about the good that we could do with our ability to communicate over social media and organize and so forth. And I think we need to start thinking more about that. I think we have to be, you know, we have to be aware. We've got some organizations out there that do some of this, you know, but you know, how effective are they, you know, are the right people, the ones that are, that are, you know, being the spokespeople are the, you know, are, are we getting the, are we getting the, the right traction that we need to get and getting in front of the right people that we need to get in front of? And I, I think we need some, I, I honestly think we need some professional help in that regard because machines like some of these 
animal rights machines are, you know, they have, uh, they have PR firms, they have um, lawyers that are working for them that are... And they're well-financed. They're well-financed, mostly by duping people who think they're giving money to something yeah. that they're not, but, you know, but they are well-financed. And, and you there's know. old ladies leaving their estate to those kind of <laughs> yeah, exactly. people. So it's like, the, they're getting donations in the millions and millions and millions. Right. It's not like, like we're asking people for, give us $20. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting... <laughs> unbelievably huge sums yeah I'd, I'd like to see i'd like to see some sort of organization you know at least uh, at least start where we can start saying all right well if you're going to be you know i i think i think we would be willing to do it in psa which is a, a portion of membership fees are going to go toward protecting our sport you know maybe maybe all of the organizations need to start doing something along those lines so that we can you know start uh, start funding some of that but you know the question is then if even if you collect some of that money what are we going to do with it where does it go? Who do we give it to? You know, who, you know, who's going to prepare, you know, sort of the, the industry's defense against the onslaught that, you know, that we're starting to see. And, and those are things that need to be sat down and talked about. I think people need to be proactive about that and figure mm. out how are we going to do it? Yeah. Well, it's good timing. I don't know if you heard me get up at four o'clock this morning to do a conference call. So I'm on the legislative committee of the IACP. They're trying to set up that essentially. There's now on the on the IACP website, there's a donate button that you can donate to the legislative committee. And that is the intention is to have that money to fight or to 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 employ lobbyists and, and lawyers and that sort of thing to address issues of legislation that would stop balanced trainers or stop dog training happening in the way that we, we know it should happen. I think that we can't discount ourselves as trainers. The ones that are spending the time training, meeting clients, building relationship with clients, we may not be the ones that are the face of this and active to go out and be a public speaker and because we are busy training, but just think about all the all the people that we meet in our training business. Just in my business alone, mm-hmm. since I've really established a facility in a few years, the amount of dogs and amount of clients that I've had to come, you know, I've had come through mm-hmm. and we can, we meet, you know, I hear a lot of stories from other dog trainers of the clients that they get, the people that they meet. Some of these people are very passionate. Some of these people have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I hear so many trainers and I see it on Facebook of, we tend to vent about our bad clients all the time, right? I hear trainers all, I, I hear more focus on the negative from our clients than the positive, mm. right? So, and not all dog trainers are, are good, are people people, right? Mm-hmm. They like dogs, but maybe they don't have good people skills. But the ones that do, or even if they don't, if they learn that if they build good relationships with their clients, that that can make a big impact from the inside, mm. right? So things start to come to a head. We may have clients fighting for us. I mean, if we have one negative remark on a Facebook page, well, guess what? I mean, I've got clients that'll jump in there and start arguing yeah. for me, mm. right? And that's just something tiny. But if it's because we build a relationship with that person, they they trust us, they like us, they know we care about the dogs, they know that they care about their own dogs, right? The, the average pet dog owners don't understand what they're jumping on the bandwagon with on the, on the social media, mm-hmm. like thinking they're jumping on the bandwagon to negative negativity, but they don't understand that it can affect them later. Mm. But if we have, we use our clients, we build a good relationship with our clients, then when when we need them, when they see that somebody is fighting against us, 
we may have clients that have a lot of influence, that have some money, that are willing to jump in um, and, and fight for us. I think as a species, it's quite unfortunate that we seem to be attracted to negativity over positivity. I mean, there's a couple of unfortunate life sayings, and one of those is that a lie will go halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed, and the other one is misery loves company. What I do tend to see is that, like you said, Janet, there's a lot of people who they are very well attracted to that negative comment. You know, it seems to spark us up. And I'm speaking as a convicted person here. I've done this before. I've reacted badly to things and haven't had my facts around me where people have pointed it out and said, hey, Glenn, that's wrong. You know, like you haven't actually watched the whole footage or you haven't responded well to this because you, you don't know the circumstances around it. And it's lack of education that's caused that. Jerry's actually, you're a good example of somebody that, I've seen negative comments thrown your way and I've waited to see how you'll respond to it and you don't. And that surprises me sometimes, but it surprises me in a good way. And, you know, like you were talking about this in your points before, and I think you're actually a good role model for that because a fair bit of heat comes your way about PSA. And, you know, there's been things like people have said PSA is a sport of thuggery and stuff like that. And yet your responses are not directly to that person, but directly to the community where you justify what you're doing based on how the resolve works for dogs of all types. And yet it's a sport that can be accessible to everybody, especially for people who are in police and military who can do the sport and then go back out and work their dogs. And I'm really impressed by that. I think that that's what more of us need to do. We just need to do what our parents told us when we were kids. When somebody says something nasty about you, count to 10 and think about your response rather than just let it belt out of your mouth. It's true. Sometimes you're, uh, or at least for me, it'll get the best of me every once in a while where I feel <laughs> we're like- We're human, right? We're like only human. to respond, but yeah, like when, uh, you know, when, you know, when, when people, when people attack the sport or they, you know, they, they, they attack uh, the things that we're doing, I think, you know, it, it just comes usually from a place where, you know, it's either ignorance or, you know, lack of understanding of, you know, of what they're talking about. And, that, and that's, that's fine. I, I know there's a lot of that out there. I, I know you have to take the good with the bad when, you know, when, when you do a, um, when you do an undertaking like this. And there's also a lot of jealousy out there of people who wish they could be doing things that other people are doing. Hmm. And I've, you know, I've, I've learned that a lot of that comes from those sorts of places and, and you, and you have to, you have to, to, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, kind of ignore that kind of stuff. But I think overall, one of the things that PSA has always done is, is, is kind of like just, we do our thing and people come along for the ride and then people might, you know, I, there are people who are now involved in PSA and of course I'd never name them, but you know, five to six or seven years ago had nothing nice to say about our sport. And then things change. They maybe meet some people, they start training, they realize, well, maybe they formed an opinion that wasn't really accurate. And then now they're coming along and we're happy to have them. You know, I think, I think sometimes speak out, people speak out of school a little bit too quickly about, about uh, the good and the bad, but you know, in the end, we're hoping that the, the product itself is what changes people um, and, and brings them over. And it's just like, you know, as we're now, you know, now we're offering uh, these American Schutzen titles and, and that's going to start, you know, in, in the latter half of this year. 
And, you know, one of the things that I talked with Dev Zapia about was we're going to, you know, we're open to everybody. You can be a member of whatever organization you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we even have a, a two-time PSA3 club member who, you know, is uh, now taking his dog through French ring titles. I couldn't be happier. I'm like, that's, there's, what's, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. We can't be stopping people from doing other sports, but there are actually, it's worse here in Australia from what I can understand that there are people that want to stop other people from participating in other sport venues, you know, as, you know, as, as if that in some way is going to make them stronger, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like building the the Berlin wall of dog sports, you know, it's like, we're going to put a wall up to keep our people in Mm. and that never works. Right. So, um, you know, as long, as long as we've had PSA and as, as long as I'm going to be involved in it, you know, people want to cross over, they want to do other sports, they want to pop in, they want to pop out, they want to, you know, bring a dog over to, uh, to us. I'm happy with that. I think, uh, I think the more people are doing dog sports and the more people that are involved in, in that part of the industry, the better, because these are, these are all the people that need to band together, right? Mm-hmm. These are all the people that we need to protect one another. We can't be fighting each other to the joy of our our true enemies who really want to see it all go away i think one of the things that i really liked about psa from the get-go jerry is the only thing that makes it exclusive is the capability of the dog that's it you know i mean anybody can come in anybody could participate but if your dog doesn't have the capability to go further in that well that's that's your limiting factor right there not who you've been memberships with in the past or what other group you're with it's a very active community sport even that being said, even those dogs that might not have the genetics for it or the training, you know, what have you, you'll see a lot of people that are in the sport are more than happy to help those people, even if they know they're probably never going to get a certificate or a title. Yeah. Uh, we'll go out there and, you know, as long as they're having fun, we're having fun too. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes what they'll do is they'll learn with these dogs that don't have it. And then they end up getting another dog that can. Yeah, it's about the tribe, right? It's it, about everybody in the community coming together. Exactly. And that's what we established in our club. Like there were some dogs when we started that we knew these dogs are never going to title. But it, it wasn't about the dogs in the club. It's about the owners of those dogs. And we just keep plodding along and they're having fun with their dog. And we are making better versions of that same dog by working towards a title, even if we never get there. But we also kind of hope along the way they get another dog. <laughs> we, and, then, right. and then we've been put the, the two years of effort we've been putting into this other dog that we knew wasn't going to come along to it. Now that pays dividends when they put it into this new dog that they got as well. But it's still the community you create, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've created a great community here in Australia already. And I mean, and being part of an international family where we can communicate and touch base with people who are readily offer support at, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. I think this is the two sports that I really am involved in and enjoy is PSA and then GRC is I think they dovetail well together because the GRC is for people who don't want to do bite work there's no protection skills in it there's the spring pole section which is for a dog that likes to bite and fight but there's it's it's a lot more palatable for the general public because it's not a person and then there is no exclusion on the dogs every dog can find an event in GRC that they are are capable of participating in even if that's walking on a treadmill they can participate but i think personally i think that the sports are so important because it's measurable i think that it's so important as dog trainers and industry professionals and i I cop a lot of flack over this because there's people who don't agree but i feel like you do have to hit the field to prove that you know 
prove that what you're saying isn't woo-woo and that you can actually, your dog can actually do the things that you say it can do under trial conditions, conditions you don't, you don't control. Like there's loads of dog trainers out there on balanced dog trainers, positive force free dogs, the full spectrum that make amazing clips for YouTube and for Facebook, but we don't know how many takes there were. And we do know for sure that they controlled that environment perfectly. Right. And they only posted those videos that proved their training. What I love about the sports and whether it's ANKC obedience or fly ball or rally, whatever, it doesn't matter, is it's a test. And you as a trainer and you as your dog have to go out there under like trial conditions and prove, hey, we either have it or we don't. What I'm talking about is real or not. And I think that's so important. I think that like, and I think if you look at the sports, most of the sports, most of the competitors, especially where there's a winner in the game are balanced trainers because that's what it requires to actually train these things. And that's why I'm worried about the sports being banned, no matter the sport, because our proving ground is being taken away from us. Our ability to show evidence of doing, doing well is being taken away from us. Ivan said something at the ISCP conference last year. It was just a very small comment, but it really resonated with me. He's like, you know, I want to be the winner of my game. And if there were a better technique than what I'm doing, I would be trying to do it. I'm not wed to the idea of training a dog in a particular way. I'm wed to the idea of winning world championships. And if there's a better way to, but so far I haven't found one. Mm. And to me, I thought that was really important thing. It was just kind of a small line that he said, but it really resonated with me. I think in the end, resources flow to their most highly valued use, right? So mm-hmm. like that's an economic principle that, you know, that I learned way back when I had a, another uh, another career. And so there's a reason why these these techniques, there's a reason why these tools, you know, have uh, you know, found traction in our industry. You know, it's, it's, uh, there, there's, they, they work. And, you know, then there's the other side of the coin with, with uh, you know, when people say, well, if you, if you have to, you know, use uh, a particular technique to uh, achieve something in a the sport, then there's something wrong with the sport. Yeah, <laughs> you know, then you know it's mm. it's hard it's hard to it's hard to fight against something like that. But when you when you say, look, we're you know we we have um, dogs that we appreciate for reasons other than um, them just being couch potatoes, you know, we have perf- you know there's there's reasons why we appreciate the performance ability of a really nice German shepherd, you know, you know, one who's got, you know, uh, nerves of steel, you know, one who is protective, one who is gentle, smart, biddable, all of these things. Same with our Malinois that, you know, they have, they have, uh, you know, personalities and, you know, and capabilities, uh, drives and, and things of that nature that we appreciate. And we want to be able to continue to produce animals like that. We don't want to be producing nervy, under-socialized dogs that don't have the genetics for real life or work. Uh, there's a reason why we appreciate these dogs. And I, th- I think we, if we don't have the sports and we don't have the proving grounds for the, the breeding, then we're going to lose all of that. And then we're going to wake up one day and wish that that we had those things back mm-hmm. uh, because the German Shepherd won't be a German Shepherd anymore. It'll, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be a smooth collie, uh, you know, and, and a Malinois won't be a Malinois anymore. And, you know, we, we won't have these, you know, Rottweilers won't be Rottweilers. They, they, they won't have the qualities that really make them endearing to us because for those of us that are in the working sports, um, you know, there's just something about those dogs and, and their workability and the fact that 
that they, you know, they live to work. Mm. And, and that's something that a lot of, you know, pet people and, and, and people that are on the other side of this game don't understand is that these, these animals love to do the things that we're, we're, yeah. we're getting them to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I think in the end, you know, there has to be more of that. We have to, we, I've said it for years. I I don't want to hide what we do. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people are always afraid to show biting or bite sports or things like that. I, I, I want to show it. I want to show what we do because, you know, there's such a close relationship between the sporting world and, you know, the, the, the w- way we employ these dogs in, in military and, and police we wouldn't have the dogs for the military and police if we didn't have the sports. That's right. That's, that's just a fact. Everybody on Facebook can get behind the military dog that kills the terrorists Mm -hmm. and saves the lives of all these soldiers. And then, you know, they go out and see, you know, a bite sport trial over the weekend and they're like, Oh my God, dogs are biting people. Yeah. Without without knowing that's probably that military dog's father out (laughs) there on the field. And we only, we only chose to do that breeding because we saw him on the field. Exactly. And that's where, that's where we were able to, um, you know, to, 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 prove the ability and the genetics and, you know, and then say, well, you know, let's, let's make more of these because we really have to employ them. I think people who are not in the industry also don't really understand the vastness of the, you know, the, just the, the dog procurement and usage in police and military worldwide. And if it wasn't for the sports, there would be none of that. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, you literally cannot institutionally create working dogs, right? (laughs) It's, it's virtually impossible. There are countries that are trying and, you know, maybe uh, some of them have had a little bit better success with, you know, with dogs like labs and, and, and springers and things of that nature. But when it comes to the types of dogs that we're talking about, if you don't have the sports, if you don't have the people competing in the sports, if you don't have the breeders that are shepherding the, the genetics that really make um, these dogs what they are, then you're going to lose the ability to employ these dogs. And we know for a fact, you know, that uh, at least in, you know, the uh, conflicts that, that we've been engaged in, you know, uh, from, from your own history, uh, uh, being uh, you know, being involved with military working dogs, that they probably have saved more lives than any other detection device that's available on the planet right now. Yeah, hundred um, percent. The dog, I know, certainly in the military, it's a force multiplier like nothing else, and and especially for IED detection, there is nothing as good. No way, no how, no metal detector, no even working intelligence networks, nothing is as good as a dog. Absolutely nothing saves as many lives in a task force as a, a IED detecting dog. Yeah, and we see the same thing in, in our, um, our civilian police applications as well. Force multiplier in days where it's uh, harder and harder and harder to get as many uh, cops on the street as you really want, having, you know, having dogs, so many more things get resolved peacefully, so many more things get resolved without the use of deadly force. Uh, if people really understood these things, then I, I think they would understand not only the need for these, you know, these animals working in, in our, uh, on our streets as, as police dogs and, and as military dogs, but then you have to go back, you know, back to the sports, which are there where, where these things are, where these dogs are created. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, if you attack the sports, you're going to by necessity attack all the rest of it. Yep. And I, I think the, the education that has to happen, you know, has to involve all levels of, of dog trainers. It's not just saying, well, you know, don't ban our tools, but if you ban our tools, then you, you're going to make it to where we can't have the sports that we want to have. And you know, we won't have the level of communication and it won't, it won't be as humane. And there's so many other things that need to be discussed and there's so much that needs to be put out there. Um, it seems overwhelming at times, you know, to, to sit back and say, well, how do we, you know, how do we appropriately defend ourselves? And I think for me at least, and, you know, being um, the executive director in PSA, 
I want to put what we do out there and let people see it for themselves because most people, once they come and they see and they realize exactly what it's all about and they see how much the dogs enjoy what they do. And even, you know, on those days that, uh, you know, that you might fail your trial, which recently happened to me, um, I knew my dog was having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I think when you get to actually see that happening and, you know, if you come to training and, you know, and see, you know, see what the, uh, see what the training looks like and see how, how, how many of these dogs are fulfilling their, you know, their genetic potential. I mean, imagine if you as a human being, weren't allowed to fulfill your potential as a, as a human, you know, these animals are fulfilling their potential. And I think that, you know, that's really a beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that it, like we've sort of been circling around and you discussed earlier, Glenn, maybe the ulterior motive is to remove the ability to train those dogs. So to remove those dogs existing, if you can't, you can't train them, they don't have an outlet, then why would you breed them? And I think that is some people's ulterior motive. But as I say, like it's the proving ground for training. Like if you, in PSA is a level two, the call off. And in Mondio, there's a call off. I can't, I don't know where in French ring, same thing. If you can get a Malinois who is most biologically fulfilled by biting a decoy to first of all, give him permission to do that. And at the last moment, change your mind and call him back to you. If you can do that on the field with no equipment, then you can do that for the lady down the street whose dog chases cats. And if you don't have people practicing that in controlled environments where we can do it, well, then the cats get eaten, right? Yes. Like those techniques have to be developed and practiced in the sports. And, and that's why we need them, even if it's just for a proofing ground for training skills, even if there'd be people listening saying, well, the police shouldn't have dogs and the military shouldn't have dogs. So, okay. But then if you want someone that knows how to control your dog and stops it even pulling on the lead, like you need a measurable performance of how well can you stop a dog pulling on the lead and that is training a dog to heal. And you need a scored a, a sport where the healing is scored so we know who's good at that and who's not. I need to ask a question on that. And it's based on ignorance because I don't know the answer to it. But Victoria Stilwell is doing a lot of live videos at the moment. She's currently stating that most police forces now in the US are starting to change over to positive-only techniques and abandoning tools. Is that because of mounting pressure, because of activist groups, or is that because they're capable of doing their work without the required tools? I would venture to say that I probably see maybe more police dogs than Victoria does. <laughs> um, I think that's a fair assessment. I'll tell you what I have seen, which, which I am thrilled about. I remember probably close to 20 years ago, I did my first um, seminar at a military kennel. Mm. And now you see so much more reward-based methodologies yeah. in, you know, military working dogs. You see much more reward-based methodologies. Which is good, right? Yeah, We're all happy 100%. about that. I'm, Everybody I'm thrilled is. about that. Mm. Um, it's things that we've been, you know, we've been preaching for, mm. you know, for, for the better part of 20 years, which is, and, and, and again, this is where the sport, you know, really filters down into, into the applications in, in military and police. Um, you know, the, we, we, we do what works in sport because we're trying to chase points and win championships and so forth. And we know that rewarding good behavior is really at the, at the base of making behaviors repeatable. And so, yeah, so I, I see so much more uh, positive training happening. I see so much more positive training happening in detection, you know, where things are being shaped and rewarded and people are understanding how important uh, those techniques are, mm -hmm. even in when it comes to control and bite work and things of that nature. You know, the obedience that you used to see 15 years ago is now giving way to a much more balanced approach in, in obedience. And so 
I would take issue with her statement that it's positive only. I don't agree with that. And I think that is just flat out not true. She can feel free to uh, feel free to prove otherwise, but I, I, I just don't see that. Uh, what I do see is a much more balance happening there. We're it's used to see a lot better. more, a lot more pressure. Used to see, uh, you know, uh, techniques that were twenty to twenty-five years old. And even as I travel around and do seminars for police and military worldwide, because I I, I do that as 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 part of when I go around and and do, and do PSA seminars mm. in other countries, I see a lot of police and military dogs, and I'm seeing even in places where you know they're they may be ten or fifteen years behind what things are are happening in the United States and Europe and so forth. You're seeing a lot more positive um, positive training uh, you know, techniques, and but those are those are things that we want to have happen. Of course, and I, th- I think that I think people assume because you employ a prong collar and e collar that that's all you do, and that's absolutely not the case. I mean, we you know we use tools to set certain limits, used uh, certain tools at certain levels to help the dog understand, to guide the dog, to understand what we want it to understand. And then, and then reward makes those behaviors repeatable. Mm. And, you know, and so if you, if you're not prepared to reward dogs, you're not going to get the best results. That's just a fact. And so, you know, it's not that we have uh, like a big argument with positive training methodologies. It's just when everything becomes a religion and it's, it's positive only, or it's, you know, it's, uh, it's pressure only, or it's, you know, there's only one way to do things. And we have to, you know, we have to, you know, read the, the training Bible of any one group or another group. And it, if it's not all, then it's nothing. It's the gun to your head that I object to. Sure. Sure. That's, that's the point that I have a hold issue with. I think there's worldwide, you see, there's lots of people who are leaving the military or police force and are saying that, you know, where they were at, they were using positive techniques and that's very true. And then, so they should be. Yeah. Yeah. But then they managed to like, they infer that that is like, so don't come after me. Like, because you know, let's say, look at someone like me, like it's why I say that I'm not that approachable. Well, I'm not a normal person. You, you can't say oh, it's 12 years in special forces background. You, that comes with a connotation, right? Like, and so when you say I was a 40 year police dog handler, that comes with a like, Oh, okay. Well, I presume I know, about how you train dogs over the last 40 years. And those people then when they start their own business say, no, no, we, I was from a force that used positive techniques. And then that is kind of a cover. Like it's, it's like, yeah, we, we were balanced trainers, but you can say it in a way that infers, we just use positive reinforcement only. And it just takes the heat off you. That's all. And then people like Victoria Stillwell then go, oh, well, that guy said that they only use positive techniques. But they say that that and it's a lie. Yeah, that's right. But she uh, says, she says that she's, she's, she's witnessing it. It's like, she says she's a part of that, that right. she can it's see that movement. But she's not seeing the whole picture because yeah. we, all three of us know an authority like on 20 that. years ago, mm. there was a, a, we'll even say a specific person, I won't name him, but he wouldn't use e-collars, wouldn't use prong collars. Everything was positive, right? So flat collar. And then when things were going wrong, he would whip the dog in the face with the end of the leash, yeah, yeah. right? Huh. But yeah. it was purely positive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think as well, like anybody who, if anybody actually is managing to prepare or train a police dog using purely positive, you're not adequately preparing that dog. Like that, there's just, that's just impossible. And can because, we see? I want to see it. Well, because I want to see the end product. Because if you that's are, what I want to see. If you are in a hundred percent of your development, staying purely positive, there is no pressure on that dog at all. You are not adequately preparing that dog to bite someone for real, because that person is going to provide pressure. And if you're mm. waiting till the dog is on his first live job to receive pressure, you have not adequately prepared that dog. But the other point I was trying to make was that was like almost twenty years ago. Mm. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. But it's 
actually gotten a lot better, the industry, because of sports like PSA or just the, you know, some of the seminars that people like Jerry do or we do. And they're actually seeing some of the results that, yeah. you know, they're, it's, there will be a little bit of a, you know, restraint. They didn't want to. They didn't want to jump on. But once they start seeing results, like typically some of the seminars would do, the first half in the morning, they'd be like, yeah, and then they see in action. They're like, yeah, I kind of like this. Right. I don't. I don't have a beef with positive only trainers. You know. I, I mean, if that's if that's what you want to do, then fine. Yeah. I that's feel right. Like if it should, works for them, that's be, fine. You should be left to do that. Yep. You, you know, you, there may be certain things that you're not going to be able to achieve with, uh, with limiting your, you know, your, your, uh, your tools. But you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I, you know, just like they can function as they wish and function in a marketplace, which is competitive. The problem is, uh, what I see is when you have the reason they attack, balanced trainers is because they're not competitive in the marketplace. Uh, they can't solve the range of problems that you can solve if you have more tools available to you. So the way to ensure the, the longevity of your business, if you're going to um, come from that sort of a background, is to get rid of all the other people that are going to be much mm. more successful competitors. And this is something that, that has happened, you know, in markets, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, you don't like your competition, get the government to find a reason to get them out of the market. And then that frees you up to do whatever it is you want. And then mm. you can be the best of the worst dog trainers <laughs> in the market. right? And then you'll have a bigger market share and so forth because you've managed to get everybody else tossed out. And, you know, when it comes, if that's your marketing strategy, which is to have to um, get rid of everybody else by force uh, from, from the market, then, it, you, you know, you should when you go to sleep at night and you close your eyes, you know, maybe, you know, think about what you're doing because really you're, you know, you're, you're not competitive and you can't be competitive um, because you're, you're, you're not open-minded enough to, you know, to be able to, to, you know, to, to understand w the range of tools that are out there that might help you help other dogs, you know, and then you go down the road of, well, I can't help the dog with, with the tools that I have available to me. So it better euthanize that dog. And I know, you know, in my 25 year career, how many dogs that we've managed to, you know, save from being euthanized, uh, reintegrate into a home properly and so forth by using good, you know, good, solid balanced methods. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of those things. Mm -hmm. I, I think whenever you run into a tough case, if your answer is, you know, just killed the dog, then, you know, you're really not doing a, a very good job <laughs> being a dog trainer. Yeah. But I, I think, uh, I think what, uh, what we have to be really careful about is, you know, people trying to manage their, you know, manage their competitiveness by, you know, calling in the government, you know, calling in mommy and daddy to, to police the, the industry. And we, if we don't start coming together as a, as an industry and policing ourselves better and integrating ourselves better and working together better and doing the things that it's clear that we need to do, which are our, our, our lobby and, and, you know, make sure people actually know what we do then we're going to be in, in that in that tough spot. And we can bitch and moan and piss about it all we want and complain about how we're so put upon, but unless we start being proactive and doing something, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a long road, you know, to our demise. So I think we need to start really thinking thinking hard about how we're going to, you know, to not to do some of these things. Mm. I know some efforts have been undertaken in different ways, you know, but I, I think, uh, I think we have to have a way to come together and fund it and, and see what we can, you know, see what we can try and achieve because we're so segmented and we're, we're so all over the map, you know, right now that, uh, that it's not, you know, we're, 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 we're not doing what we need to do. Mm. 
Call me a conspiracy theorist. You're a conspiracy theorist. Okay, thank you. <laughs> However, there's another avenue to this that's been discussed in, in certain groups, and it's certainly one that piques my interest, and that is the financial the financial investment in the pharmaceutical groups as well, like trying to swing dogs on the pharmaceuticals. I've never seen in my life such a push to get dogs onto drugs. And that, to me, spells out that if you can do it without the use of pharmaceuticals, then you're all hitting somebody's pockets. They always say chase the money back, you know, and, and if you look at it, the pharmaceutical companies would certainly have a vested interest for their shareholders and their financial groups to make sure that they're keeping on pushing their product on the dogs. And I mean, I've seen dogs on drugs that should not be on drugs, you know, and I'm going to call them drugs because I mean, I just don't understand why they're on them. I have a look at the dog and I, people have said to me, well, I got told to put my dog on this certain cocktail of chemicals. And I said, what was the dog doing before you went there? And they explain it to me. And I think this is a behavioral problem that can be solved quite easily. What was the advice that you were given? Like, what was the display? They said, no, not much really. I walked into the office and there was already a script waiting for me pretty much by the time I sat down. So this is another angle that you're looking at it. You're looking at it from people wanting to compete against you and therefore have you taken out of the marketplace. But there's also other people who want you out of the marketplace because it's not convenient to their bottom dollar from the pharmaceutical side. So it's same, same, but different predominantly. And I don't think I've had one single owner come in that has their dog on drugs that has any satisfaction of having their dog on drugs. They didn't like it from the start. They don't know why their dog's on drugs. They don't see any results, Mm. which is obviously why they're coming to me. But when you ask them questions, I don't think I've had a single owner happy that their dog was on drugs or even seeing slight results. There's no salient information out there. I mean, when you ask the same people, like they don't get consulted well why their dog was put on pharmaceuticals in the first place. Like their explanation is, I don't really know. I got told to. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that aspect, you're looking at things like the Milgram experiment where somebody in a lab coat or somebody who's got the title of doctor or vet or something like that has just said to you, you need to do this. And therefore they say, okay, because it's somebody that they believe is trusted, somebody they believe is an, is an authority. So they just, they don't even know. They shrug their shoulders and just go along with the flow of the information that they're told at the time. I, 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 also, th- I also think this is partly our fault, right? Because yeah. how many vets get out of vet school um, and even, even go into behavioral medicine and don't really know much about training dog sport. Any, the majority any, of the them. majority of them, yeah. right? Like you know, like when you, you go see a, a, a veterinarian, a lot of them don't have much experience with with the training side of things, and mm-hmm. so they know what they know, and they they understand that side of you know of uh, of trying to attack behavior problems, and you know with what they have, and and I think that's that's also part of the problem. Like, what are we doing? Like, how many years have we as an industry just sort of hidden the shadows and like did our thing? And we're afraid, well, if people see us use an e-collar, all of us, you know, then we're going to get in trouble. Or if they see us use a pinch collar, we're going to get in, you know, some mm-hmm. people think badly about it. Or we got to cover it up with a bandana and, you know, all of this nonsense. And, and it's, and it's like, the, the more you do that, the, 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 the more you feed the reality, you know, the, that, that people perceive, which is, well, they must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Mm. Right. So better to give my dog a pill than, you know, than to, uh, than to correct them. Right. So I, I think we, I think we have to, we have to be. You know, we have to be a little bit more proactive in that sense, too. And, you know, like next year, I'll be speaking at uh, Penn Vet 
uh, working dog conference where there'll be a lot of veterinarians and, and, and so forth uh, at a conference where working dog people and veterinarians are coming together. They're sh sharing th thoughts and ideas. The more the more of those things that happen, I think, the better, because then, you know, the both sides of the industry start to, to get smart about that kind yeah. of stuff. I, I wouldn't great. I wouldn't say, you know, that there's no dogs out there that need to be on certain types of medication because uh, there are. I mean, sometimes the medication certain work, certainly works. Mm. But I, I think just like anything else, that kind of stuff can be overprescribed and, and there are easier ways to solve certain problems if people even know what they are. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know what they are, then you can't actually access them. Yeah. And as, as an industry, you know, think about if you're from, uh, if you're a veterinarian, who do you recommend? Mm. Well, you know, if, if you're someplace where let's say Janet has her kennel, she has a relationship with her veterinarians and they're like, yeah, go to this person. You can, you know, you, you can get, uh, you can get some, you know, good care for your dogs. You can get great training for your dogs, that sort of thing. But there are a lot of veterinarians that, that don't have that. They don't know who's around them. They don't know who, who do they send to, who has a good reputation, who has a bad reputation. All these trainers fight with each other all the time. Right. So like as an industry, if we don't start straightening up and, uh, you know, and making it so that, uh, you know, that we're, you know, that we're seen as the professionals that we truly are, people who have invested years and years and years and years into understanding what we do and how we do it and so forth. You know, we, sometimes I think dog trainers always feel like we have something left to prove. We don't have a doctor in front of our name. We didn't get a PhD. You know, we're, you know, we're, many of us are self-taught and some of the best trainers in the world are self-taught. Mm. Like, let's, like, let's mm -hmm. get that out of the way first, right? Like some of the best people, the best trainers, the, the most decorated trainers in the world are self-taught. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you, you don't need to, you don't need to have, you know, some sort of um, knighting process that says, you know what you're doing. Like there are a lot of people that have figured this stuff out, right? And have learned from good people, apprenticed under good people. It's a, it's a different type of, different type of thing. You don't go necessarily to school, you know, to get a PhD and dog training right you go to people who can show you how to do it and apprentice and well, so the forth. only thing that the doctors have got that you haven't got is the certification by the governing body i mean you're doing you're still doing the same amount of work either side you know anybody who's becoming a, a veterinary specialist in any field they're schooling anybody who's out there on the field and has been doing it for the last 10 years they're schooling they're still getting information they're still reading they're still studying they're still practicing their art form the difference is, is one has a certified document to say that you were institutionally recognized by your peers and the other person doesn't have that same certificate through, through a peer group body, but they're still doing the same amount of work. No, for sure. And I, th I think, I think as an industry though, we have to be, you know, be um, a little more, like I said, a little more willing to. Um, be accepting of each other mm. and, 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 and treat each other with professional respect and courtesy, like, uh, you know, other doctors would do, would do with other doctors yep. and, and so forth. We don't do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you don't go on Facebook and, you know, and see, you know, like orthopedic surgeons as a profession, like dismantling each other yeah. you know what I mean, <laughs> with snide comments yeah. and, you know, in chat rooms on Facebook. Yeah. Right? Well, funny you mentioned that, like just recently there was an outrageous post shared into our discussion group. That was a guy complaining it should never have been it was just a stupid post but complaining that 99 percent of vets are just money grabbing unethical blah 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 and i commented i said this is the most outrageous thing i've seen it's so ridiculous to say that and as a dog trainer if you're training pet dogs and you don't have a relationship right. with your local vet you're a fucking idiot exactly. like you are missing out on so many opportunities and and loads of opportunities to to make money for, for starters if that's your job but to help dogs that 
the vet has no other training other than to medicate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have a, a great relationship with my local vet and it wasn't hard to achieve. Like I had been a client there when, before I became a dog trainer and when I, decided this is what I left the army. This is what I'm going to do. Just went in there with a bunch of business cards and said, Hey, can you guys, are you prepared to recommend me? Here's the body of work. You know, my dog, like here she is. You can see that I can do stuff. And like for a long time, probably two thirds of my work was coming from that. I I couldn't advertise. I couldn't take on any more work because it was all coming from them. And they're stoked to have someone that they can refer problems to. Vets don't want to get bitten by aggressive dogs. They don't want that headache. If they, if they can refer out that problem and it's, it makes their job easier. It it fuels the, the animal industry machine in a way better way than writing a script because the vet doesn't get any money for that. Like he writes the script because that might be his training, but that's, as you say, Glenn, that's the pharmaceutical company that makes that money Mm. um the vet will sell it to you on the spot but that's not they're not making a huge amount of money out of that they would and most vets people who get into becoming a vet are motivated by their love for the animals that they're treating so they really do like i would say it's the opposite to what that dickhead online was saying like i would say the percentages are the other way around like 99.9 percent it's always the one percenters yeah 99.9 percent of vets are motivated by providing good treatment to the animals that they really care for because it's a fucking hard job. Mm. It's an insane amount of study and it's a lot of guesswork at the end of the day for a vet because it's way more difficult. It's like an unconscious human patient. Right. Like you, you, you got to figure it out. Well, look at all they the anatomies that they have to study as well in the same time. Exactly. And I want to throw a quick caveat in there before, because I have sent dogs to vets to get medical treatment through pharmaceuticals because I thoroughly believe that after seeing the dog and consulting with the client for a period of time, that the dog would benefit from being on pharmaceuticals, and it did. You know, it changed their life. However, the other thing too was the vet consulted well with the client about what to expect, what to look for, what to monitor, you know, like they were doing regular blood checks with the dog. Like they had a great relationship set up from the get-go. It wasn't just step into my office, go and take that, get this on the way out at the counter and... Uh, I'll see you in six weeks to get a refill of the script, which yeah. which is happening. Like the consulting fees and the and the the customer for life factor is just hideous, you yeah. know, when that sort of stuff it, goes on. It really does piss me off when people ship mouth vets because they know what they know, but what they mm. know is an insane amount. The things that a vet has to know to be across all the species they have to cover and, and to all the to be up to date on the the medical side of things is a huge burden to a vet. And, and let's, to let's also say, be then behaviorally across mm. dog aggression and all that kind of stuff, they just don't have the time or capacity to do that. And so they they know what they know. They know that maybe I can knock the edge off this with, with pharmaceuticals and I can help this person and this animal. But if you give them the opportunity to know something new, which is as simple as going in there with a body of evidence of your mm. work and saying, mm. hey, I'm local in your area, here's my cards – you know, can, can you please refer me out in my experience? And, you know, my, my, my sample pool of one is <laughs> take that for what it's worth, <laughs> mm. but they're very willing and happy to do that. Yeah. Look at the stress and the suicide rates that exist in veterinary cultures as well. I yeah. mean, they're incredibly burdened by a lot of guilt and a lot of flaming at a, at a lot of stages. Yeah, so huge. yeah, I, I agree with what you said. That was, I think that was sage advice. Hey, so something I've just been thinking about while we talk on the topic of the industry and those in it not cannibalizing each other and turning on each other online and just you know creating a whirlwind of of problems that is disproportionate to the actual amount of problems in the industry imagine you see someone doing something online that you don't like what's your advice there scroll past and ignore it or you know instead of 
I'm guessing your advice is don't share it and go, look at this terrible thing and this well, terrible person. If you want to share it with like one of your friends, like offline, you know, and have a laugh, mm-hmm. like I get that, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's that, that's going to happen. I think, I think the, um, my advice usually to my students that are becoming dog trainers are going to have their own businesses is you've got enough to worry about worrying about yourself. And I, I think we, I think as a, as an industry, we have to be much more, um, understanding that probably the the stuff that we're seeing out there that gets shared like crazy because it's it's dumb, it's stupid, it's you know it's maybe not things that we would do or or runs counter to you know to all levels of accepted learning theory that anybody might know. Like that's the minority of what's going on, right? Like so when we when we give it that kind of attention, we you know we blow out of proportion what it is we're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we have to be I think we have to be really careful about you know about um, you know setting ourselves up to where that stuff gets you know hundreds of thousands of views because it's dumb. And then, you know, then people make the inference that, well, the dog training industry itself must be stupid. It must be full of a bunch of buffoons because this is what's going around and and getting all the attention. Mm. You know, I I think as a like what I try and do as a dog trainer is, you know, when it comes to social media, I put stuff out there about what we do. And here's what we do. And here, you know, here, you know, a lot of stuff that I put out there is very non-controversial stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll talk about controversial stuff on my podcast. You know, that's for people who, you know, who are, are generally interested in, in you know, in looking in, in more depth at things. But I think you have to be real careful about the stuff that you put out. Um, you know, put out put out things that are going to obviously help you promote your business. But I think you need to focus on positivity. You know, dogs that are doing good things, handlers that are doing good things. Like I mean, those are the things that I really want to like try and put out there. I'm not trying to put a lot of controversial stuff out there because there's no need for it. There's enough controversy out there. I have a lot of opinions about things. Sometimes I'll share them on my podcast, but most of the time I think it's better to keep that stuff to yourself and, you know, recognize, Hey, am I adding to the, you know, the good conversation in my industry or am I calling attention to um, you know, bad things that, you know, that's, th- that's going to be what everybody focuses on for the next week, you know, in, in all the Facebook threads. Mm-hmm. I think, I think we just have to be, we have to be a little careful about that. And I know there are people that, that are out there and they think when frauds are out there pushing fraudulent stuff, like you got to call them out. And like, I get that to a certain extent, but I think we have to be careful not to think that we're, you know, we're the police of dog training to the point where we have to do that on a daily basis. I think, mm-hmm. I think putting out there what you do calling attention to the good things that you do, even calling attention to the good things that other trainers do, I think is, is really important. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and referring, you know, referring to each other, uh, when you can, when you have those opportunities, I just, I just made a couple of referrals to, you know, some folks in the Charlotte area that, uh, I could have, I could have, you know, made this lady drive three hours to come to training at my place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said, you know what, like, these are really good trainers they are closer to your house. You know what I mean? Like you should go there and, and, and get, you know, get them to work with your dogs because you're going to get a, you're going to get a good product. They're really going to be able to help you out. They're good trainers they are good people. You know what I mean? And, and, and so like, that's, I think that sort of thing that makes me happy to be able to do that sort of thing because I feel like I'm supporting other people in the industry as well, you know, as well as making other people think, well, not all dog trainers are bad. You know, like I get a lot, you know, I'm sure you do it too. You get a lot of people. I'm sure Janet gets it as well. You get a lot of people coming to you because they've had 
a bad experience with a certain dog trainer and they're, you know, they've gone from one place into another place and they can't get any satisfaction and, you know, and they come to you and they want you to help them out and, you know, and you're able to help them out. And, you know, and so they have a perception that one quarter of the industry is good because they went to three people first that sucked. And then they came to you and you were able to help them and give mm-hmm. them good advice. Right. Or at least not like take their money for no good reason. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes that again, because people do, you know, have those, uh, you know, have those experiences. You don't want people to always think that, you know, that, uh, you know, you're, I'm the only good dog trainer in the industry. That's not true. There are a lot yeah. of really good dog trainers in the industry. And, and I think we have to be careful about that. Yes. Are people going to go places where they don't get satisfaction or maybe they don't, don't get what they expected? Yes, that's true. But like, let's be real. That happens all the time. Like people go out and buy cars and they get something they didn't expect or the car's a lemon or, you know, whatever. And ultimately they end up maybe like, you know, going someplace else and they get satisfaction and they're happy. And, but there's 10,000 people that go to the first place that they went to that had a good experience. Right. So we have to be really careful. I think about, about the, about just spewing that negativity around and, and try and keep things more positive because if we don't, we're in trouble. I agree with that hundred percent. You know, I've had clients that have come to me from other people and want to talk about how the other person's technique was no good and what I'm doing working or whatever. And I say to them, you know, we were trained by the same person. Like (laughs) we are doing the same thing. It's just, you don't like him. You just have a problem with him. It's not the techniques. You don't need to like, it's just, you guys didn't gel and Mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. And therefore your dog's getting better progress because you trust me and you're doing what I say. But he was telling you to do the same thing. Well, I presume because we were trained by the same guy. Exactly. So the technique is not your issue. It's this, that person didn't gel. And so I often find in circumstances like that, it's easy to go, yeah, fuck him. He's mm-hmm. no good. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's counterproductive to, because you then your own system that you, you're going to use the same system as that right. guy. You can't undercut it. So I think, and, and you know, we, me and Glenn get a lot of people talk to us about, oh, you guys uh, have so many people on the show, like world famous dog trainers on the show. How do you measure that? And like, because the industry is the size of a pinprick. Like right. it is such a small mm-hmm. industry. Everybody knows everybody and you just can't get away with lying and or being unreasonable about your treatment of people because it, everyone will find that out. Like we have so many big names on the show because we're friends with them on Facebook and you just send them a message and go, hey, how are you going? So if it's as easy to do that, it's easy for then for like bad information to spread as easily as well, yeah. which is hugely problematic. And I think all trainers have strengths and weaknesses, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's indeed the dog itself in training or certain types of people. Sometimes there are certain types of people that I've had trainers, my own trainers that, okay, I know this person is going to clash with this owner. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put my other trainer with this client, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because I know training wise, they're fully capable of working with that individual dog, but maybe one's a better match for the owner, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think trainers need to be okay with the fact that maybe they're not as good with certain type of people or certain behaviors or certain skills, just like orthopedic surgeons. I mean, I had a shoulder injury once, go to the surgeon, and he was a little, you know, a little unsure, but he said, honestly, there's somebody here that's better at shoulders. So if this doesn't work, you need to see him because he's better with shoulders, mm-hmm. with shoulders, right? So it's it's okay to say that, hey, I'm not as skilled in this area. I don't have as much as much experience, but hey, I know another person that is. Yeah, and it's fine. It's I mean, doctors don't have problems doing it. Dog trainers shouldn't have problems doing it. And just you know, the story that you just told, Pat. I mean, the person worked well with you. Yeah, that's it. The, it's not that the 
the other trainer was a, a worse trainer, mm. but maybe with that individual person, your personality fit with them better. Yeah. Sage advice once again. And that, that circle goes around like it, you're never going to lose money and work by referring people out because that circle comes back around. You're going to lose that mm-hmm. client by sending them to someone more suitable. But that if everybody, even if only a few people in your area follow that ethos, that comes back around all the time. You're never going to lose out. You're going to get up. You're going to be ahead. Actually, I just want to give a quick shout out to a former student of mine, a lady named Natalie Conway. She sent me a client yesterday because she said, I'm not going to let my ambitions get mixed up with my capabilities. I know that my training level is not suited to train this dog. I'm going to send the client to you. So the lady contacted me this morning. Thanks, Natalie. I really appreciate that. And I think more of us should be doing that in the industry as these fine people have already pointed out. All of my trainers that work for me here at Pet Resort or Canine Evolution, the reason we have you wonderful people out is not only so they can come along and pick up after everyone at the seminars, but also to listen to your advice and learn from all of you as well. My my trainers have learned from all of you guys. They've been to your seminars. They've watched you training. They've listened to Pat do his work around the PSA or just in general when we're here training dogs. I have no jealousies attached to that whatsoever. I want them to be worldly. I want them to go out and learn as much as they possibly can. Not get mixed messages. Don't get me wrong. I don't want them to be so divided in their head about what technique to use and when, but to find the best of what everyone's got to offer and find out the way that they can combine that to bring the best out in the dog. And if that's not working, they'll pick a little bit of Pat or they'll pick a bit of Jerry or they'll pick a bit of you, Janet, or you, Sean, or Michael Ellis or anybody else who they've been to in the time that they've seen here. They'll see that and go, I saw that technique J-Jack used that or Chad used that or someone used that. You know, I know I'm throwing a lot of names out here, but the reality is the more you can have that worldly advice, the more you can get into that mindset, the better as a trainer and the better prepared you're going to be in the long run. Janet, I think that's really sage advice. And I heard you say it, Jerry, at the seminar, your seminar on the weekend when you were saying, you know, like we need to be recommending each other more. You know, don't get so jealous and so out of your mind that other trainers are better suited than you to go to and work on the dog. Yeah, I mean, I think Janet was really correct there because mm, right on you know, the money. There, you know, there are there have been times when, um, well, even at our at, at the seminar this weekend, you know, like there are a couple of young dogs that Sean is fully capable of working, but he's like, you know, he handed them off to Janet. He's like, "This is your home zone. This is what you do better." Mm-hmm. And when I do seminars with, uh, you know, Sean Siggins, you know, my Sean, at, uh, my head police dog trainer. Like, you know, when we run into, let's say, defensive dogs that were working at a bite building seminar or something like that, like he'll feel out the dog and he's doing the majority of the decoy work for me. And then he'll look at me and be like, you know, this this is this one's, you, on, this you. one's on you, you know, like this is you're better at this than I am. And, you know, and I, I feel like then, you know, then really what we're doing is we're doing we're doing what's best for the people that have paid to come to the seminar, which is, you know, let's let's put our, our, our best person on it. You know, the people that understand that, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, you know, as, as trainers and decoys and whatever the case may be, let's give the people, you know, the best that we can. And, uh, and, and, and it's, you know, like it's, it's nice to watch somebody who's really good at like teasing something 
out of a dog, you know, if they have a particular specialty or, you know, they work well with a particular type of dog or a particular temperament, you know, um, profile of a dog and you watch them sort of tease out something that maybe, you know, you, you're not quite as good at yet. Mm. It doesn't mean you can't get there. Um, you know, but, uh, but, you know, but that's, to me, that to me is one of the nice things about, you know, being, uh, being a dog trainer is you get to see other people really, really work well, um, with certain types of dogs and you can get feedback and advice from other people that may have a little more experience with certain types of temperaments and things like that and, and grow. And I think that, I think, I think we, we, like, you know, you said earlier, we let our egos get in the way of so much. I, I mentioned this at the seminar, you know, the last uh, level three trial that I entered with my dog, I failed miserably. And, you know, I turned to Janet, okay, I'm open to some ideas. Like, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. And we talked for quite some time, you know, she you know, gave me some ideas about some of the things that she did with her dog. And, and we talked about it a bit. And then I talked about it with some of my other trainers and, you know, kind of came, you know, kind of came around to, you know, to a, a way to go about like reapproaching that dog. And uh, I've been doing this for a really long time and I've been really successful at not only training my own dogs, but helping other people title their dogs. And yeah, you run into moments where we need each other. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's where from the beginning, as I thought about the topic for today's podcast, I think we really need to be, you know, be more open to that and not so worried about, you know, I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. I know better. I'm the greatest trainer in the world. Like, no, there's no person like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even some of the best trainers in the world, they're great with a certain type of dog, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, you can, you can achieve world level results with a certain type of dog. And then there are other trainers that, you know, um, can work a range of dogs, you know, and, and we all have our capabilities, mm -hmm. you know, we all have our, our, our strengths and weaknesses, you know, but when it comes to the industry, the industry part of it, you know, I really want to reiterate, like we need to start doing something now to where yeah. we can stop cannibalizing each other. That's the call to action together. Yeah. That's yeah. the great call to action for the industry as a whole dogs, no matter what, where you fit on the spectrum of training, there's enough threat on the outside that we, we should be all facing out together yeah. instead of having to worry about the knives coming in your back from the inside. <laughs> I think it was a good Trojan saying that it's a better a thousand enemies outside the camp than one within. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one that I think about in workplace. It's one I think about in our community. I think the more we focus on that, the, we've got to come together collectively and put some of the pettiness behind us and really start looking at these call to actions and start saying we need, we absolutely need a world organization representing us. We've got to stop hating on people so badly that we lose track of what's most important. And what's most important is that we can still do this and offer this to generations of dog owners around the world for generations to come. Yeah. Well, I'll plug it again because, you know, I'm part of it. Yeah, I, I, I hope that the ISCP and this legislative committee that's been formed is capable of doing this. Uh, they have literally just this morning finished setting up a donate now button if you want to get involved in that. The issue, I always have problems with donating to anything like that kind of thing because you don't know where your money goes. And I'm a part of that committee. So if you trust us then you can trust that because I, I will have oversight on that. And you know, as you know, I'm the kind of person that likes to, when things go bad, I like to talk about it on the show. <laughs> so, so there's some heat on that. Yeah, well, be a member, get involved. Like yeah. get, get well, you, involved you don't in actually, these groups. You don't have to be a member of ICP to donate yeah. to that. So yeah, you can donate. You, and that's, that is to do exactly as we're talking about, is to employ lawyers and lobbyists to fight problems that are for the dog training community as a whole. The ICP doesn't say, no, this is balanced trainers, that's positive trainers. It's, it's the full spectrum. Therefore, right. that's balanced. Right. Yep. So it's about dog training and keeping it alive. Hey, um, let's wrap it up. So, Jerry, 
controlled aggression podcast. I love it. I think that if people aren't listening to it, they're a moron. They need to get on board that. The amount of super high quality free information that you're giving out on there is insane. And your book. And the book as well. How do people find controlled aggression? Well, well, they probably listen to it now. Yeah. iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, Google Play. You can find the podcasts everywhere. Also, controlledaggressionpodcast.com. We you know we have a, a website and you can stream directly from there if you want to just check it out that way. Mm-hmm. All the links to my, my book and other free information that's on my business website, tarheelcanine.com, is also accessible right through the uh, podcast website. So, you know, check that out. The book is available in, you know, on Amazon. Um, it's available as well uh, right from the publisher, Lulu. Lulu.com and the, those links are, uh, are provided on the, uh, on the podcast website. So we're, um, you know, we're, we're currently working on more stuff for our Patreons. You know, we, we've been, uh, we've been super blessed to have a lot of people support the, uh, support the show. And, uh, so we're trying to, um, we're making some more videos, uh, for, uh, for that to, to drop soon. And, um, yeah, we're real excited about, uh, about what's coming up in the next uh, half of the year with the show. I've done some more interviews actually on the show and I'm, I'm going to probably do a few more of those uh, in addition to the uh, the typical pick a topic you know talk for an hour and 15 minutes about it mm-hmm. um, but yeah I, I've been uh, I've been been getting some good responses back from uh, some of the folks that uh, kind of non-traditional you know people I have been uh, you know having on the show so I've been uh, pretty excited about uh, about that and trying to hone my interview techniques it's not easy to interview people so I'm learning more about that the more I do yeah tell me about <laughs> it <laughs> and for you know it's mostly dog trainers dog training enthusiasts listening Tahil correct me if I'm wrong but you run like bespoke courses right like someone can get in contact with you and say i want to do two weeks focusing on this and that that can happen yeah Yeah, so we so our school for dog trainers is we run courses anywhere from two weeks to six months long and um you know most our most popular courses are six month master trainer courses where you come and, and actually put hands on dogs for six months police dogs pet dogs you know, detection, tracking, you know, the, the whole gamut. So, um, you get, uh, you get a lot of, you get a lot of hands-on work with the dogs. And I think that's the most important, but also, you know, you get, uh, you get a, a lot of classroom as well uh, to round things out. But, you know, we have people that come instructors from police departments that come for anywhere from four weeks to six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, if they get, can get away for that long. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then our, um, our sh- short courses, people want to concentrate on decoy work, maybe learn more about sport, personal protection, whatever the case may be we have those you know two-week courses that we also offer and we can do custom custom things as well for people who are interested in just coming for a week or you know coming for a few days to you know to gain more interest and then we you know of course we do a lot of seminars around the country during the year um, so those things are usually listed on the homepage tarheelcanine.com you can check out and, uh, and see what's uh, what's coming up you know as far as police dog seminars um, doing um, you know harvest deployment decoy things of that nature we've got uh, got some uh, already set up and then um, you know the uh, the the PSA stuff, right? So PSAK9.org. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in dog sport, you know, PSA is the sport to get into, right? So we're, you know, we're, we're around the world. We've got, uh, we've got a lot of things getting ready to happen this summer from Ireland, England, South Africa in August, India coming in the fall again. You know, being here, we got our trial coming up uh, here this weekend. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous. Jared, thank you. Janet, State Line Canine, tell us about it. We have internships. We have our obedience program. We have people come in for sport work and mostly PSA, get some handling stuff from me, either foundation training, et cetera, get some decoy work on Sean. And where you guys are in Hanover, Pennsylvania, right? Yep. Yep. We also do some seminars. Sean puts on some decoy seminars. I 
have a hand in that, but obviously he's that's kind of his expertise. And I am looking at doing some handling seminars to prep people for um, showing in the beginning levels of PSA as well as the upper levels. Cool. Um, so that and you can take up. that on the road if people get in contact with you that you yep. can awesome. So. Yeah. I was, do that for sure, everybody. I was talking uh, to Janet during the course of the day yesterday, and I said that uh, she should be looking at bringing out some sort of media on bringing puppies on. Mm-hmm. I was watching her work with a couple of the young pups, and you know, I think that would be some great advice in your area. And anybody who's not coming to you in your local area or even traveling to see you to help bring puppies on, I think they're insane. Janet used to be my head police dog trainer mm-hmm. um, before... You know, Edwards here uh, stole, stole her, her away, away and, uh, and <laughs> took her welcome. <laughs> took her up north. Uh, but I, I would say that as far as like seminars in PSA, Janet is like one of the probably best people you could have out to teach a seminar in PSA. Like she is one of a handful of people that have titled two dogs to level three. Mm-hmm. She's her, a judge. She's a judge. Her handling skills are amazing. Like if you knew the dogs that she, as well as I did, that she took through and got PSA three on, you know, they were not easy dogs by any stretch of the imagination and for, and for different reasons. The last dog she put PSA three on was a really, really hard to handle dog and a serious dog. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes to um, handling advice, when it comes to stepping out on a field and understanding how to approach scenarios and having a really, really high level of quality in, you know, in her training, both like she understands both the bite work and the obedience side of PSA dogs through and through. Mm -hmm. And so I think she's one of the best kept secrets in PSA. She should do a lot more seminars. She should get out there Mm. this weekend. It was really, it made me happy to be able to teach with, with her and Sean, you know, Sean's a decoy gets out there, works a lot of dogs. You know, Janet had, Janet's extremely cerebral when it comes to working dogs. Like she can get out there and diagnose problems, understands drives, understands how these dogs are put together and can access things in dogs that a lot of people can't. So if you're looking to have a great seminar and have somebody out there that can really, really teach. She's somebody that, uh, she doesn't promote herself as much as she ought to. Uh, and I'll, uh, get, we I'll get better at that. We're doing I'll, it right I'll work now. on that. I beg her to. <laughs> but <laughs> but, I, I but they, she... they kickstarted PSA in our country. I mean, you know, oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I know you're the founder and so forth, but Janet and Sean kickstarted this sport with Pat, you know, mm-hmm. like they brought it to the shores and they helped to set it up. Yeah. We've been very fortunate to have, such great talent in the room that have been working with us the entire time to try and get it up. See, I put into practice what we talked about, that you learn from other trainers and you ask questions and you're not scared to learn what their strengths are and some of their tricks of the trade. And then I forget to promote myself. (laughs) (laughs) She's like super humble about everything. And like, she's, she gets nervous about putting herself out there. So you, she's not as, yeah, I, I like I'm hot and cold. Like, well, you've got to be quiet. I'll be really quiet, and then all of a sudden, I'm just like, all right, I won't shut up. Well, you just promoted to about eight thousand industry professionals, so so congratulations. Yeah, so I mean, and she's like, you know, with the decoying. Uh, the the class that I put on the seminar I put on there's a ranking system and I just don't yeah so a, tell us about that because we long story short like you know the way long I story long about, yeah long <laughs> yeah, story tell, long tell your story I'm trying to speed it up but the because uh, I know you're trying to finish up but all the main good stuff that I've learned about decoying I've learned from Jerry uh, either through watching him or through you know control everything that's in controlled aggression and Sean Siggins before he moved down to work for Jerry he just lived like 
15 minutes from me and we would train all the time. So I, I learned a lot through them and I've selfishly stole all that and come up with my, <laughs> I've added my own tweaks to certain things. Like I was actually telling Jerry a couple of them and you know, he might not like it. He might like, I don't know either way, but you know, and same thing with Janet, we add little tweaks to different things. Of course, Shonda, everybody has Siggins their own does flair. The same thing, but, um, you know, add her own flair, but the whole thing I was thinking of, you go, you go to a, um, you go to a club, you go wherever, and you go train, and you know you got a guy with a nice new suit, and everything. Like, All right, I'm gonna put my put my dog on this suit, you know, this guy, and you're like expecting that he's gonna be like, okay, he's probably pretty good, and you're like, oh dear lord, this all fell apart, mm-hmm. right? So I was thinking, hey, come up with like ranking system, and you know I do jujitsu, so I was like, all right, let's uh, come up with the belt system. So uh, you know, shows white through white through black. And uh, I've come up with uh, appropriate amount of uh, education and the appropriate level for each each belt mm-hmm. to apply to the to the program. So Jerry obviously is a black belt, and Janet again, she's so like she's humble about decoying, but she's like, and Jerry knows what I'm talking about. The first time I saw her in a suit. <laughs> we're in a trial. We're in a trial. Things are about to get sweaty. Yeah, 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 a little sweaty. So we're sitting together. Jan and I weren't together yet, but we're sitting together, and she like started working Gina's dog in a suit, and she's like hopping around in this bite suit, and I was like, uh huh. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, but she's a super. She's a brown belt under the system, and like the only reason she doesn't do it more is because she has bad knees, and you know. But she obviously, you guys saw, she knows what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's a super cool idea. It's exactly as you say, if it could take off a bit, it'd be yeah. cool to be able to look at someone and go, oh, okay, I know right. where you're at. Well, hopefully than- I'm hoping to retire from the police department in the next 10 months. Uh, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, Jan's a little nervous about that, but I want to make it happen. So hopefully we'll be able to, um, you know, my schedule take it on now is really hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, I think, uh, well, and the feedback the road, from all of those more. decoy camps that you're running or seminars on that is, is amazing feedback, mm. whether you're there in a working spot. And the working spots are the, not dog spots, right? They're people in the yeah, suit. Yeah, every people time we uh, have one, it's, I mean, it's, it's sold out typically within 36 hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had people on waiting lists. And, I mean, I could have just said, okay, everybody come, right? And then just took the money. But I really... I, you guys know me. I'm not in, someone integral. that like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't just want to take people's money. I want them to learn, want them to get the experience. Yeah. And to be honest, they have a great time. Mm-hmm. I, I saw um, a good post from Pat, uh, Sean, a while ago because people here ask, you know, how do I get involved in this? How do I get involved in dog sports? How do I learn to decoy? And complaining about not having access to it. And Pat said, well, Sean's just started this revolutionary system off. Have a look what he's doing. If you want to get involved in decoy, learn from one of the world's best. I thought the idea was absolutely fantastic when I saw it. I looked at it and I, I thought, this is absolutely <clears throat> something that identifies your level and you can learn to grow and prosper through the system and as it, you're doing jujitsu. It gives people a goal too. It, you it know? absolutely so like, does. You know, everybody wants to have something to show for what they've, what they've earned. You're awarded for your hard work. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a great idea. It is a great idea. All right. Hey, from me and Glenn and, and from our whole club, thank you guys very, very much for coming to Australia. Indeed. It's a, it's a hell of a trip. I've made it a lot recently. I, I feel your pain. I really appreciate you guys coming. The seminar on the weekend was amazing. We had a great time. Take it easy on me on the weekend for the trial. <laughs> no, you know, we're trying to grow no the sport chance. in the region. <laughs> you saw him yesterday, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but honestly, for, from all of us, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for everything you've done for us and for the game and, uh, you know, Big, big thank you. Really appreciate it. Mm, pleasure. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. 
or just tell a friend. That helps too. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is on Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode a month. Ten bucks a month gets you a live Q and A. Five hundred bucks a month will get you a hug and a kiss. Um, <laughs> or you know whatever. Yeah. For five hundred bucks a month, jeez. <laughs> <Not> uh, <laughs> and if you want to get in contact with us, you can just uh, leave that on the dresser. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can pay that in cash. So there's no paper it's trail. Preferred. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it, Glenn. Music. Uh-oh.